Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about The Boys, the audacious and dark superhero series from Amazon Prime. There are two seasons currently available, with a third season on order and a spinoff series in development. At Rotten Tomatoes, the average tomato meter score is 90%, and the critics' consensus for season two reads... The Boys comes out swinging in a superb second season that digs deeper into its complicated characters and ups the action ante without pulling any punches. My guest today is Alexandra Furman, sound mixer for both seasons of The Boys and recent Emmy nominee for her work on the season two finale. Alexandra, your sound department credits date back to 2008 and encompass both film and television. Welcome to Below the Line. Hi, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, thanks for being here. Listeners, our conversation today may include spoilers for the boys, so this is your warning. Alex, let's start out by talking about your early influences and how you got started in the business. I actually started in music. A lot of us sound people have, and I started as a teenager. I was taking guitar lessons when I was 15. I hit kind of a plateau. I wasn't getting all that I wanted to. So I wandered into a recording studio and they uh, put me straight to work. And the rest is history. I worked in music for a couple of years after that. And I moved to LA. And uh, around 2006, I decided that I wanted to make the jump into film and television because I very much liked sound design and, and very much was impressed by how much music, like composed music has an effect on film and TV. So I started making my way that direction, not really knowing it was almost or just as competitive as uh, my original dream of becoming a record producer. (laughs) So, but your interest in music and then opening up to the world of sound and your interest then developed as far as all the different aspects that go into film and television. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Now, right up front, let's address the issue. I I don't know that many women that work in this space uh, in the time that I've done this. And I'm wondering, with your career, have you faced a lot of gender bias or has that been a factor in the jobs you've had or, or the progress you've made? You know, it's really hard to say because... I've had some time to think about this now, especially now that everything's been brought out to the open. Um, I was really lucky in being uh, raised by a very strong woman who believed that a woman could do anything a man could. And I, I never really saw that as being a hindrance to me until I started to see it mirrored to me that way where, you know, I would go shopping for gear at Guitar Center or or wherever. And I would have people say things like, oh, well, if you're just getting started, even though I was, it was obvious that I knew exactly what I was looking for and the specs and everything. And I started sort of realizing that people do look at me differently. People did look at me differently, especially when I was younger. And so I do have to say that that was present, especially in my younger years. Um, But as I've kind of grown in my career and and developed more credits and more work that people have heard that that's slowly disappearing, I can't, well, I can't say it's disappearing, but it's, it's slowly becoming less of an issue or less of something that I have to think about daily about, you know, does that person have a question about my work because, you know, for whatever reason they're giving, or is it simply because I'm a woman and they don't trust that a woman can do this job? You bring up an interesting point. I think that whatever the job is in Hollywood, a lot of our effort to get a new job is based on our resumes. And then people go through that list and maybe cross-reference who you worked with. And certainly over time, you've built that list of resumes and you think that may in some ways counter the sort of initial bias that people might still hold about gender. 
Sure, sure. But I do still sometimes I'll feel it's, it's more and more rare. And I have had uh, situations where, you know, it's obvious that somebody hasn't looked at my credits or don't, they haven't recognized me because it's also a very small business. So a lot of us know each other's names and every now and then a composer will step onto a stage or somebody will step onto a stage that you haven't worked with or haven't heard of. And, you know, I can feel that there might be a little bit of a measuring going on. Well, before you were able to build up those credits, let's go back to the early days and talk to me about making that transition from music into film and some of those early jobs. Sure. I had so many early jobs. (laughs) (laughs) I had to support my audio habit, as I called it back then. In order for me to work at a recording studio, I had to have another job. I was a department manager at Nordstrom in the lingerie department, and I also worked at a flower shop. I worked at Barnes and Noble. And then at night I would work in recording studios. I would work from, you know, 5 p.m. till 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., whatever it took. And I was working mostly on local bands in the beginning as a teenager. I worked at a studio called DML Studios in Escondido. And it was famous for recording a band called Blink-182 that went on to become very famous after their first record was recorded there in Escondido. And I started working there shortly after that, but they actually came around quite a bit and they referred a lot of other, you know, pop punk bands to come through. So I worked a lot of pop punk. I worked a lot of like screamo was popular at the time, uh, metal, uh, anything that the local people of Escondido wanted to record. (laughs) And from there I started, uh, working at another studio. This one was in LA. It's called studio Atlantis. And I worked there two days a week and I worked full time on all the other days in San Diego. So, and of course those days were not back to back. I worked Tuesdays and Thursdays at Studio Atlantis. So I had to commute to LA and back twice a week and then work full time on the other days at both the studio and at Nordstrom. And then after that, decided to make the leap to Los Angeles. I had gone to school here after my initial time at DML. I decided to go to recording engineering school and the engineer who worked there said, oh, you don't need to go to a school. I'll teach you everything you need to know. You already know it. You just need to get better. And his studio was completely analog. All the gear was analog. It was uh, really great to have the opportunity to learn that way. But I had heard about a program called Pro Tools and I wanted to learn about it. And they were teaching that DAW at uh, Musicians Institute where I went and I got to take some musicianship classes as well. I got to connect with a lot of other musicians there that we are still lifelong friends. After that, I went back to DML and then decided ultimately that I have to be in Los Angeles for this to work at all. Because even as I started working at other studios in San Diego, I worked at a studio after DML called Rolling Thunder, and it was a great experience privately owned. There was a little bit of drama happening, you know, from time to time with the owners um, and finances. Uh, And that was one of the better higher end studios in San Diego at the time. So I thought, oh, if this is, you know, nearly the top of where I can go here, I I should probably think about moving to LA. So I moved back. So I worked at a hip hop studio called Studio Atlantis and worked at another small studio in Santa Monica all the while still selling laundry. (laughs) (laughs) And then, but the leap to film, you certainly have a lot of experience with sound through the recording studio, but did your experience help you right away to make the leap or did you have to start over again? In some ways I had to start over. I had to start over with, you know, people knowing who I am or what I'm capable of. 
but I did have a lot of work within Pro Tools. And so I knew pretty much that any job that had to do with using Pro Tools and sound engineering that I could figure out. So I had that kind of confidence behind me. And I think the confidence is really what propelled me during that time in making the leap. Uh, because I could see that people, I, I was still very young at this time. I was uh, just around 20. So my first job in post-production was at a video house called Encore Video. And they focused mostly on uh, VFX and color. But I didn't know anything really about post-production yet, except for that I wanted to get to this magical place where people mix uh, music and sound effects. So I just started looking for any post-production job I could find. And I showed up to my video post-production house for my interview wearing a shirt with headphones on it. And the person interviewing me, who became a friend later, she said, um, I see that your entire resume is sound and you have a headphones shirt on. Did you know that this is primarily a video house? To which, of course, I said, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I really didn't didn't realize what the distinction was between all the different things that happen in post-production. So I call that like a very happy accident because I learned so much about picture, about video and color and editing that the combination of skills helped me have such a head start when I finally did get into sound. I worked there as a client services for a couple of weeks. And then, you know, I, I asserted my technical knowledge and I stayed every night and trained with the overnight crew to become a telecine assistant back when there was still film. And I would sit with them and assist the colorists. At the time, they did the dailies color overnight. And I eventually made my way, well, it didn't take long, a couple of weeks into that schedule. And I worked 2 a.m. to 11 a.m. transferring dailies footage what I would do is I would take the film, lace it up in the bay, colorist would do a color pass on it, and then I would sync it with all the original audio from the set and lay it off to tapes. And so that was a nice, it was a nice uh, interim, except for the graveyard shift was not for me. <laughs> and from that experience, then now you're building a resume where you can start applying directly to these positions on film and television opportunities. The company that I worked for overnight as a telecine tape op also owned a sound company called Tadeo, which it's really sad to me that their name is slowly disappearing. But at one time, they were the most well-known independent sound company, and they have been around for 100 years or something. And I really wanted to work there. That was my dream, to, to work at Tadeo. I, I had heard that they had some really amazing sound designers and mixers there. So every night, I would come in, and before my shift... I would scour the, the job board to see if there was anything over there. And there never was. Um, it's, it's really sort of a, it's kind of hard to get into sound now because there's not too many entry-level positions. So, or I shouldn't say now, that was 15 years ago. <laughs> um, but it was, it was hard then, it's hard now as well. But one day after the writer's strike, there was a listing for a scheduling assistant. And I went ahead and took that interview and at the interview, I met an engineer named Steve Barkowitz, who said that they were very impressed with my interview, but they were curious why somebody with technical background uh, would want to do scheduling. And I said very honestly that really, I just want to wake up in the morning again. 
I just want to work in the daytime and eat lunch at lunchtime because the graveyard shift was killing me, but also that it was my dream to work at Tadeo and I wanted to make my way over there and work my way up. So Steve Barkowitz's response to me wanting to move up was, you know, to offer me an opportunity to train. I wasn't sure if he fully trusted that I would take this opportunity and run with it. It didn't have much on the upside for me immediately, but it was a huge opportunity for me if I had the patience and the endurance to go after it. And he said to me, if you want, you can come train here as often as you'd like. I'll hook you up with the other stage techs. And, you know, when there's a position, I can't promise that I can give it to you. But if you are ready, if you know everything about the boards and about the routing and the deliveries and everything by that time, I will consider you. And that was huge because this was an in, this was a way for me to prove myself. And so I, I worked from 2 a.m. to 11 a.m. And then I went to Tadeo from 1130 a.m. until 7 p.m every day for months and never a position came available until one day I met somebody in the hallway and they happened to be looking for a stage tech. Uh, Their current tech was also a musician and they were unhappy with his outside, um, his his other extracurriculars because sometimes he wouldn't want to stay late because he had a gig or a show or something. (laughs) So they said, Hey, I've seen you around. You've been training. Uh, would you dedicate yourself to our stage? Would you stay late? And I said, yeah, I would like, I would do whatever it takes. I would do anything to get a job there. So I said, sure, I will work whatever days, whatever hours that you have on your schedule. And that was how I got hired at Tadeo. And so I became a stage tech there. And that show was a show called NCIS. And I was working on that show for five or six years. And I still (laughs) didn't even work on it half of its life. (laughs) Still going maybe. So that was, that was a major opportunity that he gave me to be there and be trained and be ready to go, especially because how you were saying earlier, I'm not sure if that plays a role, right. But I don't think anybody expected that a a very young woman would uh, have the sort of knowledge to get into this side of the industry that has been really dominated by not just men, but, but older men, it does take a quite a bit of experience to do these jobs. Well, you certainly have a lot of experience now. I see that on you know, IMDb starting in 2008 and then just rolling forward. It's a couple of credits every year leading up to the boys. Talk to me a little bit about that period of time. I noticed that you overlapped with Eric Kripke, creator of the boys on Timeless, one of his earlier shows. Is that where you met? There were some other steps in between. As a tech, I took a lot of work after hours uh, doing other mixes and editorial projects. I would do like spots for people's reels or whatever they were trying to put together. Anything that I could get my hands on to have clients behind me, I would do just to get the experience of like having people giving me notes and being able to pull off those notes quickly and efficiently. So yeah, I was a tech for six, seven years, but I also was mixing. There was a show called Workaholics you know, it was a comedy central and they, they wanted us to mix from their AAF, but I couldn't let it go. I wanted to edit some sound effects for it. Um, so I was doing that while I was on the stage and then eventually that mixer got busy and I started mixing that show as well. Tadeo eventually went out of business and then I became a sound supervisor because there was a run on mix stages. And I knew that with my very little credits at that time, that I wasn't going to be able to secure a spot on a stage. 
I really love sound supervising as well. I just always wanted to mix. But for the time being, I took a job. I got really lucky. Somebody who I'd been working with before named Nick Bradley gave me an opportunity on a show called Scorpion. And I became a sound supervisor on that show. And then from there, uh, Nick Bradley moved on to Timeless. And that is where I met Eric Kripke. And I was a sound supervisor on Timeless for the pilot episode. And that was an amazing experience. I got to see a little glimpse into my future of how detail-oriented the builds are for uh, somebody like Eric. That show had two time machines, and we had a great sound designer named Steve Avila who did the initial sound design. And then we had so many additions and textures that we added on the stage as well. And I was there working on those. And uh, yeah, that's how I met Eric. And the next thing he had was uh, the boys. So Alex, in terms of working on the boys, you've been there for two seasons. Let's take an aside and give our listeners an idea of how the team is structured in post-production. I'll start with the video side since they hand off to us. On the video side, there are picture editors who have assistant editors and the assistant editors do a lot of temporary sound work temp sound. They're pulling effects. And sometimes during that process, they'll call on the sound supervisor for some material to put into their edits that they send out their initial edits. Once those edits are completed, that process is called locked. Once that edit is locked, then they'll send it over to sound. So we coordinate with the assistant editors. They coordinate with the assistant sound editors. And I'll tell you how that team is structured. There's a sound supervisor who is in charge of everything from the picture department to the stage, to the completion of the mix. They are the person who sits in a spotting session with either the showrunners and or directors and the picture editor and get an idea for what they want the show to sound like, what they want it to feel like, what kind of atmospheric sounds that they'll want, uh, what types of cars or doors or whatever it is that they're looking for so that we have a roadmap once we get on the stage. That sound supervisor will then go to their editors and give them tasks to complete as a result of that spotting session. So there'll be a sound effects editor, a dialogue editor. In some cases, there's a separate sound designer but not on the boys. On the boys, uh, we have an effects editor who also does the sound design. His name is David Barbie. And then there's also a Foley team and the supervisor has to relay any Foley notes. And for those who don't know about Foley, it's anything sort of tactile, any sounds that a human makes, like you know, dragging a cord across the table or setting a bottle down. And all the footsteps get recorded, all those sounds get recorded. And then that all comes back to the sound supervisor, who in the meantime has been working on the ADR with the actors. And all of that gets edited. Sometimes there's also an ADR editor, but a lot of the times the supervisors are doing that work as well. Let's clarify what ADR is as well. Oh, ADR is automated dialogue replacement. And it's anything that's recorded from the actors after they're set. So a lot of the times during the edit, If they've cut a scene down or something needs to be clarified or somebody's name needs to be pronounced differently, or if there was a noise on the, on the track, like, you know, there just happened to be a propeller, a prop plane flying over at the exact moment that the actor delivered their most perfect line, those things will need to be replaced. So we will have the, we'll invite the actors in to work with the sound supervisor on an ADR stage and re-record 
those things. And a lot of the times we record efforts there too, which we'll talk about later with the, with the fight scene. So yeah, so all that, all of those elements come back to the sound supervisor. They put them all into a session and run it to make sure that they've hit all their notes. And at that point, they'll turn over to us at the mix stage. They'll send all that material to our stage tech and the stage tech will load up our sessions and uh, tell us anything we need to know, like if there will be a music replacement later or, you know, if there was a note from the editor. And then from there, we start mixing. And there's usually two mixers on the boys. It's myself. I do dialogue, music and group, which I didn't mention. Group is also something that happens during the ADR process where there's a group of actors who come in to record anything that happens in the background because on set, nobody's actually talking um, in the background, talking about like at a cafe or they at... better not be. That's <laughs> right. A, the, they better not the be. AD, I'll, I'll our, be my, my AD team hasn't done their job if we're picking that noise. Up, so, <laughs> but we need to add it back in. Exactly. We have to make those people feel alive. So all the people at VOT, for instance, in the background um, or Planet VOT are added later. So the group gets recorded and edited as well. So I mix dialogue group and music on the voice. And I have a mix partner named Rich Weingart who mixes sound effects, backgrounds and Foley. And so is that a typical arrangement? And is that specifically for television or is that also your experience in film? It's pretty common for both now. There have been a few instances where I've mixed things alone or, you know, single mixer. And recently, you know, I've done in my past, I did effects mixing as well. So sometimes I'll still do that. But yes, usually there are two mixers. Uh, but depending on the director's level of comfort and also the budget, sometimes, you know, sometimes people just want to work with one person. So you'll, you'll get more time, but you'll have just one mixer do both sides. With this sort of flow, it sounds like in the mixing stage, you might be pretty far removed from uh, the director or even the production sound mixer who's on set actually capturing sounds. It sounds like it's gone through a lot of hands to come to you. But tell me if I'm misunderstanding what those relationships might carry through. It's true. We are pretty far removed, especially in episodic television. The director's are usually, I, I can't say even usually, but sometimes are only on board until their director's cut goes out and then they're off directing something else. It's the case, I believe, in the boys. The pilot episode, we had the directors come in for the pilot. And then of course they, they went off to do something else and we finished it up with Eric. And Eric is really the one who's at the mix with us every time. But yes, it's different for every show. But I would say in television, mostly the EPs that we work with and directors, not so much. Sometimes they'll come sit in on a final playback. And as far as the production mixers go, I love to have a conversation with them because I think that there's a lot that we could understand about each other's jobs more to like little things that we could each tweak that help us find, you know, a better mix in the end. So I really do like to have a, a open conversation with them. Thomas and I have a conversation before the beginning of each season. And you're talking about Thomas Hayek, who is the onset production mixer. Yes. Yeah. And he's lovely. Well, on the boys specifically, what other challenges do you think are unique to this show? This show is big. We're creating this world that is hard to, hard to believe and hard to imagine, but somehow, you know, making it feel that this is, is, this is the world. 
And we have a lot of work to do in building perspectives from the different characters because each of these characters has a very distinctive personality and sees the world a very specific way. And I think part of our challenge is making sure that we help the audience feel, you know, each moment through the eyes of, of who is driving the story at, at that time and amidst all the chaos that's going around them. So there's always a fair amount of balancing between people yelling and the, the horror that's happening on screen and the, the gory sound effects and the music that's driving and, and then the comedy that's happening at the same time. So I think what's unique about this show is putting focus points on all of those things at the same time in a tasteful way so that so that the audience can be cued into you know following exactly what's important by choosing which of those elements to highlight at any given time that will almost unconsciously in some ways cause people to think about or focus on on different aspects of the scene yes exactly also alex given your background in music i'm curious to hear more about the role that christopher leonard's as the score composer plays in this sort of flow from capture to final product? Christopher is, he's amazingly talented and he really captured the feeling of this show in general really well. And he was involved early in season one. He came to the first playback and he was um, really helpful in, you know, how he wanted his music to play and how, what he wanted to be felt. And also the philosophy behind the music, which was really helpful. So he, his role is, is incredible. I mean, he's really, he's giving so much to this show through his music and especially like the brand that it has, like this, like kind of, kind of punk rock feel that it has, I think is lent a lot to, or he lends a lot to that genre. Yeah. It's really great working with his music. And I really, the one thing I will uh, divulge is I liked it so much that I, on the first couple of playbacks, I was playing the music really, really out front. And through our playbacks, we started to pull it down in places, you know, really down, which was such an interesting thing because I think it was so important to do that because now we have, we're on this roller coaster with the music where, you know, things are quiet, 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 and then start building up into the important impact moments. And I think that, that was really great that we were able to do that with his music and it translated really well on TV too. Like even I was, you know, I've listened to the mix several places and it's great that we were able to play music so low in places and still have it translate so you can feel it. So I read online that they filmed the second season from June to November of 2019, which would have meant that it was in the can before we shut down for COVID. But I'm curious how COVID might have affected you in post-production last year. Yes, we were in the middle of mixing The Boys season two. We had just a couple of episodes under our belt. I believe we've had mixed three episodes, but hadn't quite finished two of them. And there became a point where it was uncomfortable for us to continue going to the stage. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful to both Eric Kripke and our post producer, Gabriel Garcia, because they treated us as if that, you know, they were worried about us. We, we, they weren't going to come to the stage and there were, was a way that we could all come to the stage still and send our mix to them remotely. But they asked us if we were comfortable and we were not comfortable at that time right away. So we, we took a break and 
uh, and when it was time to come back, we were ready. We were ready to come back and we had to, it was still during COVID, but we had many protocols to go through. There was just myself, my mix partner, Rich, and our mix tech, Nick Jimenez in the room and everyone else was remote. And we were being really careful and sort of like having confessionals about what we did over the weekend to make sure (laughs) nobody saw anybody outside of their bubble. And we were all very serious about it. So I felt safe working with them and we were able to finish the season that way, working remotely. So we changed our workflow quite a bit. You know, we had an extra day so that we could prepare our mix and send it out because in the beginning, some of the streaming services were glitchy and we just wanted everybody to view the mix in the proper way without any disruptions. So uh, we ended up printing our mix off and sending it out. And then Eric would send in our no- his notes and we'd have phone conversations and Zoom meetings with him about his notes and how to pull them off and make sure he was happy. And then we would print it again and send it to him again. We go through a couple rounds of notes that way. You managed to avoid any hiccups on the season itself, I believe. And it, it culminates in that final episode, which was nominated for the Emmy, specifically in the category of Outstanding sound mixing for a comedy or drama series, one hour. Name of the episode is What I Know. The team nominated is yourself, your partner in re-recording Rich Weingart, we mentioned earlier, and also the production mixer, Thomas Hayek. So Alex, I'll ask some specific questions about things that caught my attention when I was watching slash listening to the episode. And you tell me whether it uh, spurs any memories from you, acknowledging up front that this was a long time ago. Has been a full year, yes. Okay, so we'll recognize it. So the things you don't remember, again, the passage of time is, is all the excuse we need. I want to start with some of the smaller things. And it caught my attention thinking about your background in music as well. In the beginning, there's a conversation in the car between Huey and Starlight. And that may be sort of typical. You see that all the time. But they're also talking about Billy Joel on the radio. With Again, with your background in the music, it triggered a thought to me to ask how that came together specifically or if that any memories of those scenes in this in the episode yes that scene so that you know obviously a big a big to do that scene was super cool that's when they um are singing along and of course i don't want to make billy joel sound like he's coming out of this shitty car radio because that song is so amazing. So I had to find a, a good balance of in between so that we feel we really do feel that it's coming out of the radio, but we still get like all of the energy of that song and also massage it under, under the dialogue. And then eventually they start singing along. And it was also important to take notice of who is singing most prominently at any given moment when the camera's on them and they're totally connecting on this song. And he, this is really Huey's dream come true that she also loves this song. It's a nice balance to try to figure out how to, how to make it so that we really feel Huey hearing starlight and also them both sort of climbing and level as they get more excited toward the end. Um, And so there is a lot of discussion and with Eric too about who to feature, how to play it, if the songs to get louder or if their voices are supposed to come up and over the song. And that was a really fun sequence and I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out. And they did record, actually, they recorded that after the fact we started with production and ended up going into ADR so that we'd have a little bit more control over them. And I thought the the two actors did just an amazing job of keeping that happiness and that feeling that they had when they're driving in the car. 
Another scene that struck me from a sound perspective was in the restaurant where Homelander takes his son Ryan out to eat and he gets rushed by the crowds. We talked about group earlier, how those folks are supposed to be silent when they capture there. But in the scene, you have these echoes in Ryan's head as the fans are rushing him. And so another one where I'm wondering like how that came together and the creative input you had. So that was also another really fun spot to work on because we went back and forth about when to start feeling him really go into his head and how to make it really feel uncomfortable and, and anxious and and terrible for Ryan because this is again like we're trying to sell Ryan's perspective and we wanted it to feel like a panic attack (laughs) so we started with those group voices surrounding him and growing and then you know it it goes into his head space where everything's just sort of swimming around and we did a lot of panning work there so that it's just very disorienting and you can't really tell where the voices are coming from and you just see Ryan's face just you know he looks like he's about to explode and with the music as well we did the same with the music we sort of made it you know spaceless and also like a little less defined of where it was coming from so it's sort of nauseating and uh, I think that was a really fun sequence to work on it. To me, it turned out it was effective. Agreed. I certainly caught my attention. Another area where I was thinking about you in, in my rewatch was when they're doing the weapons montage in the basement. And I'm curious about how a scene like that, you choose the right music. That choice was definitely made by Eric. And I believe that they made that pretty early on in the editing process either that song or something very similar. I'm not sure. I know that Eric works with a music supervisor who has provided like, you know, just a lot of cool songs for various situations. And I think that one was one of those French rap songs. Was it? I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked that song. Yeah. And Rich did an amazing job of making all of those weapons feel sharp and like, you know, just meaty and big in the moments that we needed to hear them. I think Rich did an incredible job with the with the actual sounds of the gun and how it goes along with the music is pretty great. Now, Alex, this might be a little bit too much in the weeds, but tell me about getting the sound effect of those devices, the whirring devices that are used to distract Homelander. That's actually a good question. That would be a question for Wade Barnett, who is our sound supervisor. He worked early on to get those to Eric and the edit- editing room with uh, David Barbie, the sound effects editor. And I think that there were many options sent to the editing room. And that was the one that was chosen because it it is both jarring and not completely deafening. I think that that's part of the reason why that was chosen. And then of course, on the mix stage, we decided, you know, how much of it to hear, when to hear it and, you know, how far away, because we don't want to just blast everyone's ears out for three minutes. So we have to sort of hide behind things or tuck it when we can so that it's uh, effective, but still not completely overtaking. Agreed. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, the different levels and how it sort of interacts with the action on the scene, I think is really important to, to how that develops. I have a load of questions about the climactic fight scene, but before we get there, there's one scene right before that's really quiet. And that's where Butcher is saying goodbye to his wife. In that intimate moment, it seems just as important as what we're about to get to, that the balance between these levels is correct. Yes. So there's music in that scene that's really beautiful and really, uh, you know, emotion provoking. You really want to be in this quiet with them. You want to feel 
the emotion, the unspoken um, sadness of letting go, all of those things that are happening. And meanwhile, they're riding in a car, you know, on a bumpy ish road. And you want to really make it feel like all you can really hear is this realization that they're parting ways and they've been through this really long journey together. So everything was really delicately placed. Um, even the rattles of the car were in between, you know, looks and, and the music was again, playing softly so that you're really noticing what's happening between these two characters on their face. And both from a sound perspective and a dramatic perspective, that really sets the stage for this fight we're about to have between Starlight, Queen Maeve, Kamiko, and Stormfront. Complete chaos of this scene, but again, from a sound perspective, it's got everything. Yeah, and I think it was really set up nicely for us by Eric. Like, that's such a great scene to have just before that, to to have everything sort of slow down and then just be jolted right out of it back into this world of, you know, heavy combat (laughs) and turmoil. So I do agree with that. And I'm really, you know, again, I'm I'm a fan of this show. I think (laughs) (laughs) I like how they set that up for us to work on sonically. And so in a scene like that, the fight is going on for a long time. And so certainly the ups and downs of this, when to use the lightning effect, when there's an explosion, there's a neck snap in there that's really distinct that uh, jumped out at me. And there's music. Oh yeah, we've got punches, we've got cloth movement, we've got efforts from everybody. We have the music blaring. We have, when it shows up on stage, Rich and I are both looking at each other like, all right, you know, like let's, let's make a plan because we want everything to be a singular action. We want everything to be noticed and we don't want to clobber each other. So I don't want to, I don't want to take away any impact of his punching by my music, or I don't want, I don't want his, you know, cloth movement to be over a subtle effort that we see. So we sort of make a plan amongst ourselves and, and go after the details. And then of course, um, we'll, we'll do a lot of carving. It's, it's really feels like, like a carving. We'll address each element on its own. So Rich does an amazing job, I think, at making each uh, punch sound distinctive and sound different from each other so that it's not, you know, just like a full line of punches. It's, it feels like everyone is hitting a different part of the body or hitting harder or lighter or whatever it is. And then, you know, he'll carve the cloth around that. And, and then to me, it was really important to hear the efforts from the superheroes, because especially for Stormfront, this is the first time we've actually seen her have any sort of pain so having her wince or you know react at all it gave it like that much more power that she was actually getting hurt and we do want to hear all the efforts and again these actors really gave us some great stuff to work with because you know you can make a punch as loud as possible and you you don't get that connective tissue or you don't you don't actually really feel it unless you hear the pain from the person that's when you can I think that that's when you really relate to it. Yeah. So we just go through and obviously the music in that scene is driving. It's loud and it's a really great, again, a great choice for the scene. I love that cue that they picked. And in that case, you know, we worked on everything before putting music and then we would do a a pass with having the music sort of drive. And then after that, I would carve away little spaces where we could hear if anything was on a beat or a hit that was obscuring anything that we would massage that. And then, so hopefully it turned out in a way where everything was felt and heard and it was as powerful as it, as it could be. 
well, it came together really well. And it's no surprise that the, in my opinion, that the episode is getting Emmy attention. As we mentioned earlier, you finished this episode about a year ago, but as Amazon has done with this series, once again, they approved a third season before the second season had even aired. So they're very happy with it, not worried about the numbers. And the second season is filming now, should be wrapping up soon. Are you working on the third season of the show? I will be. And so tell me what else you've been working on since then. Uh, So I just finished a film with directors, The Daniels, and the film was called Everything Everywhere All at Once. And I don't want to say anything about it because it is it is so cool. (laughs) And the Daniels are the gentleman who did Swiss Army Man some time ago. It's own peculiar film. Yes, it is peculiar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had so much fun working on that film and working with them and seeing how they work. So that was great. I don't know when that's going to come out. I hope it comes out soon. I do hope for people to see it. I can't wait to hear what other people think of it. Currently, I'm working on a Netflix series called Archive 81, and it's it's mysterious and it's uh, it's really got some some cool elements to it as well. I think mix wise, it's going to be a fun project. Well, Alex, I'm looking forward to both of those. Hopefully you'll come back and talk to us about them when they come out. Good luck with the Emmys. Thanks again for your time today. Thank you. It was so nice to be here. Thanks as always for listening. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you'll check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website, below the line, one word dot biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb. So it's easy to cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. And a special thanks to our regular listeners. I appreciate you joining us week after week. Join us again next week for a new episode of Below the Line. I'm going to have to edit that because it's not the real. <laughs> I'm a little, I will be offending some people. You want to lose it all together? Or you want to say that in a different way? I'm going to say it in a different way. Go for I'm it. Just... <laughs>